You're listening to TIP. Welcome to The Good Life. I'm your host, Sean Murray. Today's topic is the novel War and Peace, and I've invited Andrew Kaufman to join us. He's a Russian literature professor at the University of Virginia, and he's the author of the book, Give War and Peace a Chance, Tolstoyan Wisdom for Troubled Times. Andrew is incredibly knowledgeable about Tolstoy and the life lessons we can draw from what many consider to be the greatest novel of all time. Don't worry if you haven't read the book. Andrew does an amazing job talking about the themes and characters without any major plot spoilers. In this episode, we talk about Tolstoy's advice for how to deal with change, both in our individual lives and in society at large. We discuss Tolstoy's view on suffering and how it relates to meaning. We talk about the role of family in a flourishing life. We cover Tolstoy's view on leadership. And we get around at the end to Tolstoy's advice on how to live the good life. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Andrew as much as I did. My friends, I bring you Andrew Kaufman. You're listening to The Good Life by the Investors Podcast Network, where we explore the ideas, principles, and values that help you live a meaningful, purposeful life. Join your host, Sean Murray, on a journey for the life well lived. Andrew, welcome to The Good Life. Thank you for having me. Well, it's a pleasure, and I'm looking forward to our conversation immensely. The topic of today's discussion is the novel War and Peace by Tolstoy. And although it's considered by many to be the greatest novel ever written, it's also one of the most feared. You know, at 1,500 pages, 361 chapters, it can be intimidating. It certainly was for me. However, in the last few months, I don't know if it was COVID or what, I felt like I had a little more time. I decided to pick up the novel almost on a whim and read it. And I was just blown away, really just blown away by the emotional impact, the incredible storytelling, the grand scope of history. It covers Napoleon's invasion of Russia of 1812, which I didn't know much about, the characters, the relationships, and really for the purpose of this podcast, the lessons, the life lessons that I think Tolstoy is trying to teach us. So I'm really excited to talk about it. I know you've written a book about War and Peace called Give War and Peace a Chance, which I also highly recommend. I happened to read that after I read War and Peace. So I wanted to start with, just for the benefit of maybe some of the audience who haven't read War and Peace, you know, a little background on Tolstoy, the novel itself, and why we should give it a chance. Thanks, Sean. By the way, I want to share with your listeners that you shared with me before we started that you read this book on your own, and I want to commend you. That is a heroic feat. It's like climbing Mount Everest by yourself without a, a partner. Most people I recommend, they read War and Peace in a group with others. It's a journey that you want to take together, and you want to take it very slowly. So it is 1,500 pages. You shouldn't try to conquer all that in a week, even a couple of weeks, but even a couple of months or a six-month period. The fact that you did it on your own, congratulations. That's a triumph. You know, War and Peace, to boil it down, it's an epic novel about the Napoleonic Wars between 1805 and 1813, between Russia and Napoleon. And the way the novel works and the reason we get into these characters so intimately is because, yes, there are hundreds of incredible battle scenes where we see just the complexity and the confusion, and in some cases, even the beauty in the horrors of battle. 
But we also have a lot of the novel takes place in peacetime, and it follows four main families through their journey during this tumultuous period, this transformative crisis-ridden period in Russian history, these eight years, culminating in Napoleon's invasion of Russia in 1812. And so Tolstoy follows these families, and many of the characters are either in their teens when the novel opens, or they are in their early 20s. And so we watch them come of age as they search and they struggle and they try to find their place in the world through this really traumatic time period. And that's what lends the novel its incredible intimacy, its sense that these are real people that you can relate to, that we can all relate to. With this novel, Tolstoy revolutionized the European novel. You mentioned 361 chapters. I don't think you mentioned, but nearly 600 characters are just some of the features that Tolstoy added to the European novel. There are hundreds of intersecting plot lines. Early readers of the novel, when they were reading it in installments, they didn't know who the main character was. It didn't follow any of the traditional formats that a traditional, elegantly structured European novel of the time did. And that was intentional because Tolstoy said that his goal as an artist is to tell the truth about life in all of its countless inexhaustible manifestations. And that's a quote. Goal of the artist is not to solve a question, but to celebrate life in all of its countless inexhaustible manifestations. The only way to capture that in a novel is to create an entirely new form of novel altogether. And that's what he did. Henry James called Tolstoy a monster harnessed to his great subject, all of human life. And so the the sense of almost breathlessness that readers have when they read this book is the sheer volume of human experience that Tolstoy packs in. All the rules of novel writing that he breaks and the risks that he takes. Today, we forget how revolutionary war and peace was in its own time because every novelist after Tolstoy basically had to work from the model that war and peace had already established. Tolstoy influenced American writers like Hemingway and um, James Joyce. Proust, fought William Faulkner was the other big one. And he also influenced all future generations of Russian novelists. For those of you who love Bryce Pasternak's Dr. Zhivago, Pasternak could have never written that novel had he not been inspired by the example of War and Peace. Just to touch on that, one of the aspects of the way that Tolstoy brings this reality and it manifests on the page is the historical nature of what he's grappling with. And I read, I don't know if it was in the introduction or maybe in your book, that Tolstoy tried, and I think he almost succeeded, in every historical character that's in the novel, because Napoleon is a character in the novel. Napoleon's generals show up. The Russian generals that are in the novel are the historical Russian generals that commanded the Russian army during Napoleon's invasion. So I believe what Tolstoy tried to do was if one of those historical characters was speaking, that there was some reference to historical record that they actually said what they said in the novel. And I think that brought a certain, I don't know, realness. His writing is already filled with this fabric of reality that when you step into it. But that fact I found quite fascinating and it drew me in. In addition to being an epic, in addition to being a family novel, in addition to being a philosophical novel about humans' existential quest for meaning, in addition to being all sorts of other kinds of novels, it is a novel about war. It's a historical novel. 
So yes, it is fictionalized, but Tolstoy read hundreds of books. He did enormous research. He visited the sites that he describes in this book in order to write these scenes. And so you have both actual historical figures, some of whose lines are taken directly from historical documents and others Tolstoy makes up. And then you have fictional characters. Those are the families. Those are the stories of the families that go through this period. Tolstoy made all of that up. Of course, they were based on people that he knew as well. But yeah, the historical figures are very historically accurate. Now, some people have criticized Tolstoy for falsifying history, for having an agenda in War and Peace. And to the extent that he had an agenda, it was to show people that the way history had been written before War and Peace, the way Russian history had been written was false, that it was always told from the perspective of the great man of the leader. And Tolstoy didn't believe that that's how history happens. Tolstoy believed that history is a concatenation of hundreds and thousands and millions of circumstances and human beings and their social influences and their family influences and their intersection with one another in one another's lives. And history books don't tell those sorts of stories. Tolstoy decided that he was going to write history the way he thought it should be written. And so, you know, and he's been criticized for this. You know, I should also say that it's interesting that his take on the reason Russians defeated Napoleon is very different from the way the history books of the time and after had written about that subject. But Soviet soldiers during the invasion, Germany's invasion of Russia during World War II, which is a repeat of history, a repeat of the event that Tolstoy describes in this novel, that those soldiers were given copies of War and Peace to read. And they said they found his description of battle even more real than the battle that they were witnessing with their own eyes. And so Tolstoy had this ability to take the truth about the world, the truth about history, and tell it in a way that had never been told before and give it such an immediacy and such a freshness. That's where you, that comment comes from, that it seems more real than reality itself. Well, let's talk about some of the central themes and what we can learn from reading this novel. One theme you've already touched on this a little bit, but one thing that kind of runs throughout is this idea of how do we deal with change? There are characters in the novel that you say are trying to find their footing in a ruptured world, and they create a meaningful life for themselves in a country being torn apart by war, social change, and spiritual confusion. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. And I also will maybe talk a little bit about the inspiration for why that particular subject seems so relevant in the time when I wrote this book in started in 2008, but it's newly relevant in 2020 once again. But yeah, to get back to something I mentioned earlier, part of the immediacy, the power of this book is that, yes, it is about a major historical event. It's about a cataclysmic time in history. The way Tolstoy makes it real and human is he, he lets us into the intimate lives of these individual characters who are struggling to find meaning in this really traumatic time period. Sometimes history can feel so overwhelming to us. And I think many of us had that sensation in recent years in our own country, certainly around the world in light of the pandemic. And sometimes history and the, especially these tumultuous, these cataclysmic events can feel so huge that we just feel like we have no individual power or the the role of the individual becomes questioned. Well, Tolstoy wanted to focus on the individual. He wanted to show that it's human beings who go through these times of crisis. And we watch these characters making decisions 
about how they are going to react to these changes, how they are going to take responsibility or not take responsibility for the suffering of others that they see around them, how they're going to take responsibility or not take responsibility for the power that they do have, the agency that they do have to change their own lives. And so each character goes through this process, this quest to find fulfillment, to find meaning in very different ways, in the same way that all human beings have different ways of relating to especially times of change. In a lot of my book, I write about these moments where characters have these incredible insights that come about precisely as a result of their world falling apart. These moments of Prince Andre on the battlefield of Austerlitz, thinking he's going to win his, his fame in the battle, but instead, as he's running off onto the battlefield, instead of killing you know, hundreds of French troops, he gets whacked over the head by an enemy soldier's musket. And he's lying there on the ground in the middle of the battlefield. He's looking up at the sky and he notices the lofty infinite clouds slowly creeping across the sky. And he asks himself the question, how is it I've never noticed these clouds before? How is it I've never noticed the beauty, the grandeur of the sky before? That's an example of a moment. And there are many moments like that. An example of a moment where a character is literally knocked off their path, not just figuratively, but literally he's knocked over, he's knocked onto his back, and he has this new insight that he did not have prior to that moment of crisis. And so one of the deepest messages of this novel is some of our greatest insights don't come when everything is running smoothly or our old paradigms seem to be functioning well. The greatest insights come when we've been knocked off the horse, literally or figuratively, when our old paradigms no longer work, and when we have to reimagine what the world is in a whole new way. I love that scene, by the way, of Andre on the battlefield. And what I took away from that and some of the similar scenes in the book where people have these epiphanies, characters have these epiphanies, is this sense that in order to experience the highs in life, in order to really, truly experience reality, experience the joy of living, you also have to go through the depths, the tough times, and the characters that have the courage to put themselves out there, to take risks, to explore, to embrace and work with this change tend to lead to those epiphanies. But there are some characters who take it easy or take the easy route, don't take a lot of risk, you know, stay in the bureaucracy, live life more for themselves than for others. They never have those experiences. Yeah. So let me give you a compliment, Sean. You took a lot from this novel. I'm very impressed. These are really deep insights that you're sharing from the book. And they're very important insights. And in some ways, they're not typically American insights, right? So much of American culture is focused on how do we achieve success? Now, obviously, a podcast like The Good Life is one of many counterexamples to that, right? You're inviting people to focus on the big questions and the philosophical questions and questions of value. And I'm not, I don't want to generalize and suggest that Americans don't do that, but there's such an emphasis on commercial success, professional success, and on positive psychology, on being happy. Go to the self-help section in your bookstore. How many books are there that offering you the tips and the tricks that you need to be happy, to get what you want out of life, et cetera, et cetera? And I'm not denigrating any of that for a minute, but I think one of the great insights that a writer from a culture like Russia can offer us is Russia is a culture that has experienced a lot of suffering. 
and for many more years than even American society has been around. Russia was founded in the 10th century, and they had a history of being invaded by other countries, such as Napoleon in 1812. They have had a history of not being a democratic society, but an autocratic society in the 20th century, a totalitarian society. So you've got writers who grew up in a culture which, where you see suffering and you see injustice and you see the, the harshness of history all around them. And I think that gives them a different perspective on what's important in life, what's valuable in life. And so what you were picking up on in this novel, that suffering can be a great teacher. And in some ways, suffering is the best teacher. It's not the only teacher, but it's the best teacher. And, and you can learn things about what it means to lead a meaningful life, what it means to truly be fulfilled. You can learn those things through suffering in a way that's much more difficult to learn them when everything is going well. And so, so this is a really important contribution that Tolstoy makes in this novel, which I think is particularly useful for an American audience who are not used to necessarily hearing that message or thinking about it in that way. Well, I think we often project our road to success as sort of a straight path, the ideal road, you know, the one that we hope that will be ahead of us in life. And when we look at our rearview mirror and we look at our lives, we realize there always are ups and downs. And it's in those times of challenge where we often grow, where we often learn more about ourselves. And we experience, I should say, the turn of events that lead from the lows often lead to another high in your life, right? And that's something, that, again, that comes out in the novel. Every character that does go through one of these events of suffering and survives in some way, that suffering tends to somehow lead to a positive later on in the novel. And I think Tolstoy is telling us that, yes, there's meaning there, and we have to sort of continue through that and learn from it. And that's what life's about. One of the reasons, Sean, that Tolstoy needed 1,500 pages to tell this story relates to something that you just said. Tolstoy needed that amount of space to tell the story because the human journey is long. I mean, life is short in the scheme of things, but the decisions that we make today or what we go through today, we don't know what the outcome of that will be until often many years down the road. And so, he shows these characters over long periods of time, taking one step forward and two steps back, making mistakes, hitting dead ends, having these triumphs, and then all of a sudden, you know, experiencing tragedy. But he gives us the full journey. And so we can evaluate these characters in their lives over a long period of time. And it is true, as you pointed out, it is true that today's triumph, today's great success could be very well paving the way to tomorrow's tragedy and vice versa. Today's tragedy could be the springboard for tomorrow's triumph. And one really great central example of this in the novel is the character of Napoleon himself. Napoleon is the ultimate egoist. He's the ultimate success-driven character. I mean, he had conquered all of Europe, and now he was going to take Russia. Well, he didn't take Russia. He failed. And he failed Precisely when he thought he was winning, because he had penetrated all the way into the Russian countryside, no invading army had ever gotten that far, he finally took over Moscow. But what he didn't realize is that by spending all of that time in Russia, and it was the fall, he was depleting his army of the resources that they needed on the long winter march out of Russia, and nine-tenths of his army got destroyed. It's a great example of how Tolstoy is showing that 
while we think we may be succeeding, we seem to be fulfilling all the rules of success. Napoleon was conquering Russia. He was invading it. He was actually destroying himself, but he didn't know that. It's so true to life. And the opposite is true too. That's a negative example, but there's also positive examples of characters who fall down and, and feel like their life is over and only discover that that was a springboard to something very beautiful later on. Well, the story of Napoleon in the novel is just fascinating. It keeps you engaged. And there's a Russian general who's sort of the foil to Napoleon or the Russian answer, maybe Tolstoy's answer to this egotistical force that Napoleon is. And it's General Kutuzov, if I pronounced that correctly. And could you talk a little bit about General Kutuzov? Because I loved him as a character and I, I learned a lot about leadership from observing him as he led the Russian response, I should say, to the invasion. So Sean, what's interesting is I, I've actually spoken to and done workshops with business audiences about the stories of Tolstoy, about war and peace in particular, and the lessons of leadership that this novel can offer. So I'm very intrigued that you picked up on that immediately. And probably have heard of Tom Peters, you know, the management guru, management strategy consultant, he has called War and Peace the greatest book on management. I don't think he said leadership. I think he said the greatest book on management ever written, and for precisely the reasons that you were pointing out. So Napoleon is the quintessential egotistical, egomaniacal conqueror. He is all about conquest and success, and he's all about himself. And he doesn't have, in Tolstoy's depiction, an ounce of humility in him. He believes in the powers of his own intellect powers of his own intellect to come up with the strategy that has just defeated all of Europe and now will defeat Russia. So that's one kind of leadership style, right? And we've all seen examples of that, both in government and in business. And sometimes that works for a while. It instills fear in people. It creates a cult of personality. You know, There, there are some short-term positive benefits of that leadership style, but I think historically, it can't sustain itself. So Tolstoy offers an alternative kind of leader who is, as you said, the Russian leader, Mikhail Kutuzov, the, the commander-in-chief, who is Napoleon's exact opposite. He's humble. He treats his troops with compassion. He's interested in the people around him. He doesn't believe that he has all the answers or that his intellect alone will come up with the perfect strategy to win. He believes very much in the power of community, of shared power. He's also deeply religious. He's a Russian Orthodox Christian. He's even compassionate towards the enemies. When Napoleon's army is marching out of Russia and being destroyed, a lot of Kutuzov's generals are saying, now is the time to finish them off. Go you know, destroy the rest of the French army. He's not going to do that because he doesn't need to. And there's no reason to inflict further suffering because he wasn't personal enemies with Napoleon. He certainly wasn't personal enemies with his troops. And so this humility, this compassion, this awareness of the limits of his own power actually proved to be incredibly effective leadership skills in this particular moment. Because Kutuzov has a lot of instinct about people. He's not known for his sheer intellect, but what he's known for is his wisdom and his instinct about people and his instinct about nature and about events. He understands intuitively that Napoleon's army is going to be destroyed by the Russian winter. There's no reason for this cool, flamboyant strategy of attacking Napoleon on the way out of Russia. Not only is that immoral, but it's also ineffective. And so before battles, there's a famous moment before the Battle of Austerlitz, 
all of Kutuzov's generals and strategists, you know, are showing plans and maps, and Kutuzov just sleeps. And he wakes up briefly from his sleep and he says, Gentlemen, before a big battle, the most important thing to do is to catch some shut eye. And the reason is so you can be present. So that's just, you know, that's the kind of leader that he was. And this contrast between these two leadership styles is really an archetype that we see in business and government all over the place. And I will mention one more thing. Nelson Mandela was given a copy of War and Peace to Read when he was incarcerated in South Africa during apartheid for many years. And he would later say that War and Peace not only sustained him during his incarceration, it was the one book that kind of breathed life into his devastated spirit. I mean, it literally kept him alive spiritually. But he also said he learned a lot about leadership from the character of Kutuzov that he would then employ when he went back to South Africa and became president. Wow, that's fascinating. I did not know that Nelson Mandela had read War and Peace in captivity because one of the mantras of Kutuzov is time and patience. You know, he knows winter's coming. He knows how big Mother Russia is. He understands the environment, the context, and he knows that time and patience is on his side, not Napoleon's side. And so he exercises this strategy of retreating, retreating, one or two blows at Napoleon when he feels like he can do it. And then he just let winter take Napoleon, basically. But what I wanted to say about Mandela is that he eventually, it took a lot of time and patience for Mandela to get to power and then to finally exercise power. And when he did, he exercised it with a lot of humility, just like Kutusev. That's a great story. Let's talk about, I want to go a little bit further into happiness and success, if we can. And this idea of how one can attain, I don't know if happiness is the right word, or live a fulfilling life, what do you think Tolstoy was telling us about that question for the reader? As you know, in my book, there are 12 chapters, and each chapter is titled one of these different words, happiness, success, love, death, family, courage, perseverance, truth. So there's two different chapters, one called success and one called happiness. So in many ways, those two, are we often talk about them similarly, but let me just talk about them separately because I think Tolstoy find interesting distinctions between these two ideas. And, and I think one of the things I tell my students on the first day of class, whether we're reading War and Peace or any Russian literature, is I tell them, before this semester is over, you are going to be convinced that Russian literature is the most optimistic literature in the world. No one thinks about Russian literature in that way. There's an old joke that the definition of a happy ending in a Russian novel is the character discovers the source of his misery. <laughs> That's a happy ending. It's also a bit of a stereotype because the happiness that Tolstoy is describing for us in War and Peace is a happiness that comes about not in spite of suffering, but in the midst of suffering. War and Peace is a book about how we as human beings can reframe our definition of what it means to be happy, to reflect reality. You know, there is no struggle-free condition in life. No matter how hard we try to escape suffering, to avoid struggle, to take it easy, life just doesn't permit that. And the pandemic that we're living through right now is just a great case in point. Nobody asked for this. No one predicted this. And yet lives are being torn apart right now. People you know, who own a real estate, who own office buildings, I mean, their businesses are being destroyed 
along with you know thousands of other retail businesses. Who would have predicted that? That's life, Tolstoy says. Who would have predicted that Napoleon is going to invade our country in 1812? No one would have believed that in 1805 because Russia seemed to be winning the war. And so that is life. Life is struggle. Life is change. It's movement. It's suffering. And being able to accept that and be at peace with that and then find the courage and the wherewithal and a paradigm shift that allows you to find joy in the midst of that reality. That for Tolstoy is real happiness. It's not a cheap happiness, but it's real happiness. And if we can't do that, if we can't find joy and experience joy in the midst of life as it truly is and not as we wish it would be in our fantasy, we will never experience joy. And so this is one of the really important messages about happiness in this novel that doesn't look like maybe what we thought it looked like. And there's a, a great line in Anna Karenina, which really gets at this point. In Anna Karenina, Anna has committed adultery. She's left her husband and she's finally consummated her love affair with Vronsky. They're traveling in Europe. They finally achieve their goal. They're in love. They're together. She's apart from her husband and yet they're not happy. They're not happy and they don't understand why they've achieved their goal. She's free. She's free of this man that she hated, her husband. And there's a wonderful line in that moment where Tolstoy, the narrator, steps in and says, and this is a paraphrase, it's pretty close, but a paraphrase, that the mistake that they were making is the mistake that people since time immemorial have made. And that is confusing happiness with the gratification of your own desires. They confused happiness with the gratification of their own desire. That is not happiness, according to Tolstoy. By the way, the narrator that drops in with these nuggets of wisdom, obviously, is Tolstoy himself. And the number of times you find yourself reading sentences like that throughout War and Peace is just more than any novel I'd ever read before, where he just sort of drops it in on you and says, this is what's really going on here. And more often than not, would tend to agree with Tolstoy. And I think one reason Tolstoy was able to do that, and you talk about it in your book, Give War and Peace a Chance. Tolstoy lived a life that had a lot of ups and downs. There's one character who goes through a very challenging time when he gambles away a portion of his family's wealth, and his family really can't afford to lose that wealth, and he gambles it away in a card game. And I come to find out, maybe you could tell the story, that Tolstoy had a similar experience. So when he describes it in the book, you really feel the emotional strain that this young man feels as he goes from a casual card game to the depths of realizing that he has essentially gambled away his father's fortune. 43,000 rubles to be exact, which in today's money is around $800,000. So they were wealthy. They were an aristocratic family, but not that wealthy, and especially because it's clear at that point that his father is having financial difficulties. His father made his son promise that he would stop gambling. He promised, but he broke his promise. And that is taken directly from Tolstoy's own life. Tolstoy had a gambling addiction, like a lot of Russian writers did. Dostoevsky had a gambling addiction. Pushkin had a gambling addiction. Tolstoy had a serious gambling addiction, and it cost him dearly in his 20s. When he was living in the Caucasus, serving in the army, he lost 6,000 rubles, but he didn't have cash. He didn't have enough to pay, pay off his bet. So he basically used as collateral the house in which he was born, the house of his birth. 
which was a three-story, 42-room house worth $6,000 on, on about a half an acre of land at that point. Tolstoy lived on a giant estate, and there were a bunch of houses and structures, but this was one of them. So when you go to Yasnaya Polyana, Tolstoy's home in Russia, Tolstoy's estate in Russia, and you visit it, you will come to an empty plot of land with a, a gate around it, and you'll see at your feet a little stone that says, on this spot, once stood the house in which Tolstoy was born. Well, the house is no longer there because literally, he sold it to someone who basically lent him the money. Uh, they literally came and, and loaded, t- dismantled the house brick by brick, board by board, loaded it onto a horse-drawn carriage, and then carted it away. And rumor has it, it stood empty until 1913 when it was torn down and the wood was used as firewood. But Tolstoy lost that house when he's 26. And this was a time in his life. And then it's so interesting. And that very day, he writes in his diary, he writes, I promise that today is the last day. I will not gamble again. And then, of course, the very next morning, he wakes up, he read in his diary, you know, woke up again, had a hangover, lost another 200 rubles. I can't promise to stop. So Tolstoy understood the weakness of human weakness, of addiction, of having the best intentions, but simply not being able to realize them. And so, yes, he brings all of that pathos to characters like the one who gambles, like other characters who have these utopian ideals that Tolstoy had in his youth that he was not able to fulfill. And that's one of the reasons that these characters are so real and relatable, because Tolstoy breathed his own life, his own very imperfect life into them. And we can be thankful that Tolstoy's life was so imperfect. I sometimes say if Tolstoy had lived a more perfect life, War and Peace would have been a perfectly boring novel. Yeah, he certainly brings that depth, the highs and lows of life and the depths of the fabric of reality that he, he's able to create in the novel. He brings it to the table. And let me just share uh, on a personal note, that particular scene was the scene, the first scene that I wrote about, the chapter called Rupture. Rupture is the third chapter of the book. And that particular scene that, I, where, that you talked about, that scene where Nikolai loses 43,000 rubles and then comes home, is the scene that I started writing the book in 2008. And that's the first scene that I wrote about. Because if you remember what was happening in 2008, the country was going through the financial crisis. And I was watching people's lives being destroyed and, and it affected people around me. It affected my family to some extent. And, and there was a real sense of, of shared suffering. And so it suddenly struck me that, wow, War and Peace is a book about a society of people going through a time of rupture, a time of crisis, which is what our entire country is going through right now. And so it suddenly became very relevant to me I had never seen that before. I, somehow I hadn't made that connection before. And then it became clear that this is the classic for our times back in 2008. I would argue in 2020, it is still the classic for our times. But the thing about that scene, the reason I was so struck by that scene is because after Nikolai comes home and has lost the money, he wants to put a bullet through his head. He's so ashamed of what he's done. And he, he's embarrassed to have to talk to his father. And he would just rather end it all. Literally, he, he says, I, I bullet to my head is all that I deserve now. But then in that moment, when he is pit bottom, he hears his sister, Natasha, sing. And he is so transported by the beauty of her voice that he's suddenly catapulted out of his depression. He starts singing spontaneously with her. And it's like he, he doesn't want the day to end. He has heard Natasha sing hundreds of times before. This isn't the first time that, he, that her, his sister had sung in their house. 
But this maybe was the first time that he was actually able to hear her and appreciate the beauty of her voice. And in some ways, that's what happened with me in War and Peace. You know, I was at a very low point. A rupture had happened in my life and all of our lives. And I was finally able to hear the beauty of War and Peace, a book that I had read, you know, countless times before and understand it in a way that I hadn't before. And that's, that's so true to life. And that gets back to this idea that moments of rupture are often moments where we tap into sources of insight or strength or courage that we didn't know we had before. I'm glad you brought up that scene because it is one of the most beautiful scenes in the novel. And it, it also brings up this, another theme that I was hoping we could discuss, which is families. So Nikolai is sort of comforted in some ways by his family when he comes back after this horrible loss. And the family, in many ways, his love from his sister, his love from his parents helps him through this period. And you mentioned that this is a novel about four families and how they react to the experience of the Napoleonic invasions. And this family, the Rostov family, is my favorite, maybe a lot of readers' favorite. But could you talk about how they deal with this, the importance of family, and maybe contrast that with other families? So family is one of the chapter titles in my book. And Tolstoy was really fascinated with the theme of family. He himself came from a large family. He had a large family of his own. He and his wife, Sonia, gave birth to 13 children, five of whom died when they were toddlers. It was a very common experience. And when he was working on War and Peace, he actually had extremely joyful family life. He took his summers off and he would go hunting and play with the kids and enjoy that. And then when fall came, he would write full-time and he had servants and governesses to help manage the house and to take care of the kids. He had his wife, Sonia, who every night when he was done writing, Sonia would take what he wrote for that day. And until late in the night, she would transcribe everything he wrote into handwriting that was legible enough for him. And she would put it on his writing desk and then he would have it the next morning because he couldn't read his own handwriting. And so one of the reasons that we see such an interest in the topic of family life is because of Tolstoy's own experiences, but also because he saw a lot of families falling apart in the 1860s. His friends were getting divorced because of the social changes and the more progressive ideas in the air. This was the beginning of the feminist movement in Russia. And Tolstoy was a very patriarchal, conservative thinker. And he was not impressed with these progressive movements because his belief is that family is the seed that holds the world together. And when families fall apart, when traditional families fall apart, the world falls apart. That's according to Tolstoy. You can take issue with that, but it's important to understand the context. So it's important to understand the context for his deep appreciation of the importance of biological family bonds. And so during a war, during a time of crisis, family is what you fall back on. Family is the indestructible seed from which you come, and it's the ground beneath your feet. In fact, the word for seed in Russian, simya, is almost the same word as family, simya. The word for seed in Russian is this, almost the same as family. And so Tolstoy really was playing with this idea that when everything else is falling apart, the one stable ground that you have beneath your feet is your family. Robert Frost said something similar. He said, family is the place that when you got to go there, they got to take you in. Let me just share one example of a moment in the novel where we see the power of family togetherness to help 
ease the suffering. It's later on in the novel. Natasha Rostova, who's one of the heroines of the book, has just lost her, I won't give the name, I don't want to give too many plot spoilers, but she's just lost her former fiance who has died. And she's depressed and she's wallowing in her pity. She's about 18 years old at this point. She's wandering around the house, ghost-like, thinking that nobody can understand her and her suffering and what she's just lost. And then all of a sudden, her family gets the news that their younger brother has just, Petya, has just died in battle. And Petya wasn't even 18 years old. And Natasha sees her father literally stumbling, unable to walk. She hears her mother moaning, wailing. And all of a sudden, Natasha is catapulted out of her self-absorption, and she realizes that her parents need her as much as she needs them. And in that moment, it's as if she becomes an adult. And the way that her own wound heals is by helping to heal the wounds of other members of her family. That shared suffering that her family goes through is what allows her and all of them to return back to life. There's a, a beautiful sentence in that moment. Tolstoy says that love awoke and life awoke. Love awoke and life awoke. And it happened within the context of family. It also happens within the context of turning from an, more of an inward view to an outward view of life. Thinking about yourself versus thinking about others. And that's another theme I took away from the novel and from Tolstoy was this sense that if you want to live a fulfilling life, if you want to make the most of what you have here, your opportunity here on earth, that you want to live for others in addition to yourself. There are characters that just sort of live for themselves in the novel and you see where they go and they don't go very far. And there's one character in particular I was hoping we could talk about before we bring this to an end, and, and it's Pierre. And Pierre embodies all the things we've been talking about so far. So could you talk just a little bit about Pierre and what he embodies in the novel and what Tolstoy teaches us through his experiences? Yeah. I mean, Pierre has always been the character that I loved when I was in college reading this book. He's one of the main heroes, one of the main seekers in this book. He's 20 years old when the novel opens. And he's the one who goes through some of the harshest suffering. He's also the one who ultimately achieves happiness, a deep and abiding happiness in the end. And just to give you a little sense of his journey, kind of a trailer version of the journey of Pierre in War and Peace, the novel opens. He's just come back from an extended stay in Europe where he was being educated, as young aristocratic men often were. His father is dying. His father is the wealthiest man in Russia. His father dies, and Pierre inherits the largest fortune in Russia. He gets lured into a disastrous marriage with fortune-hunting Helen Kuragina, whose family is trying to orchestrate this marriage for their own, their classic example of the egoist, people who are looking out for themselves. That marriage, needless to say, ends in disaster. Pierre is in a state of depression. He meets a Freemason, and he becomes a Freemason under the influence of this Freemason. He thinks that he's finally going to get out of his depression by doing good for the peasants on his estate. He's going to reform his estate. He's going to free the peasants. But Pierre doesn't have a clue of how to do those things because he's like the most impractical person who ever lived. So the peasants take advantage of him. That's a disaster. So that's you know project number three that's a disaster. And the novel goes on and on and on. And Pierre, kind of like a pinball, is catapulted from one failure to another. And he has moments of happiness in, in between. And 1812 comes the war of 
you know, the war and Napoleon has invaded Russia. Pierre wants to see what battle is like. And so we, he goes into, out to the battlefield and all the soldiers are looking at this guy in his white summer hat and his green tailcoat and wondering what he's doing there. And Pierre returns to Moscow. He sees an Armenian woman being harassed by a French soldier. He stands up for her. He gets into a fist fight with a French soldier. He gets arrested. He becomes a prisoner of war. Okay, so this is Pierre Bezukhov, his journey. For the next six weeks, we watch him marching with the other caravana soldiers, literally feeding on horse meat, literally his feet bruised, his toes shredded. And when he thinks that, and we think that couldn't possibly get worse, he's sentenced to execution. But he doesn't realize that this is the cruel joke of the French military. They'd like to show Russians execution. It was a mock execution. They just wanted to bring him there to let him witness one, to inject more suffering into him. And so he witnesses an execution. He realizes that could have been him. And that moment is it. Every ounce of faith in God and life has been destroyed in him at this point. He's thrown into a dark shed and he's truly hit bottom. He's been stripped of everything. And he meets a wise old peasant there in the shed. And the peasant does something very simple. He gives Pierre a potato. He gives Pierre a potato. And that simple action of human compassion, of human empathy, Pierre has never tasted a potato that fulfilling, that delicious in his life as that potato that he ate on that day. So that little act of human kindness helps him realize something that in all those years of, of searching for you know, the solution, the utopian solution, the ideal solution to his life, and all those years, he was missing something, that the greatest joy is simply the ability to experience the joy of simply being alive, simply being a human being, being present in this moment, whatever this moment is. And that's the beginning of a transformation for him. But it took him all of those years of suffering and struggle to come to that really important realization, the power of being present and appreciating the sheer beauty of being a living human being on this earth. And if someone had told him at some point that all he had to do in order to achieve that discovery or that happiness that he finds is to follow you know, five rules of how to have a happy life, it would have been cheap. It never would have stuck. The reason that insight is so powerful to us is because of how long and how hard he had to struggle, had to fight in order to achieve it. And I think this gets back to this, you know, we've all had moments when we're ready to throw in the towel on a relationship, on addiction, you know, on life itself. And suddenly grace magically intervenes. And we realize in that moment that life isn't as crummy as we thought it was. And all that suffering that we had gone through somehow makes sense and is somehow purified through grace, through a new insight. And the thing that I think Pierre shows us is that the thing that we're looking for, that we're searching for, isn't out there. It's not out there in some utopia, some fantasy. It's right down here in this world, in this imperfect world, this world of struggle and hardship and change, that if we are to find our satisfaction, if we are to find our happiness, that's where we're going to find it, right down here, not out there in, a, in our fantasies. I found that those scenes very touching, and it seems that Pierre learns a lot from this peasant who he spends some time with. A short time, but many, many pages in the novel, they spend time together, and he sort of observes this peasant embodying what you're talking about, living in the present. The potato that the peasant gave to Pierre, it's not like the peasant had 
lots of potatoes. It was abundant in food. The food was scarce at that point. They were two prisoners of war in a very dark place. And one can only assume they weren't being fed very well at all. And yet this peasant gives what little he has. It's a very important observation you made because suffering can do one of two things to us. It can make us hunker down into our own little bunkers of self-concern, right? Boy, my life is hard, so I better just look after number one. And that is a choice that many characters in this novel make. But other characters, like the peasant, make a very different choice, that in moments of suffering, that's when we experience our shared humanity. That's when our deepest humanity can come out. And so it is often the characters in Tolstoy, in War and Peace, in other works that Tolstoy wrote, it is often the characters who have the least materially that have the most spiritually. It's the characters who have the least that are most inclined to be generous, to give of themselves. And I think that, you know, is also a really profound message. In ending, I wanted to talk about this point that you make in the book. You say that Tolstoy is not so much providing in War and Peace a set of answers to life's challenges as he is encouraging a certain mindset toward living. How would you describe that mindset? Well, it sounds like a shameless plug, but I think you have to read the entirety of Give War and Peace a Chance for me to answer that question. But there's a couple of things which are important here, and I, we've touched on all of this in some way, shape, or form. Tolstoy is saying, don't trust the gurus. Don't trust the people who pretend to have the easy answers. Don't trust yourself when you think you found the easy answer, because chances are you haven't. We must all go on that quest for meaning and fulfillment and happiness. It is a struggle. It is a quest. It's a very worthy quest, and it's the quest of what it means to be a human being. But we have to go on that quest. We can't substitute it for something else. And so in my book, the point that I make is it's not that Tolstoy gives us the answers about how to live in a family or how to persevere you know, or how to confront death. He does offer insights into those things, but even more importantly, he helps us realize that we have to experience life for ourselves. We have to go on that quest for ourselves. We have to connect with our own authentic truth, which is probably very different from the truth of others or even the truth that has been handed to us, either by tradition or by society or our families or even our earlier lives, that the truth is continually, you know, we're continually rediscovering it. But it's always changing. And to think that there is a final destination, a final ending point is an illusion, and it's only going to cause us suffering. Tolstoy said, and I think this is a great quote to end on it, Tolstoy said when he was writing War and Peace, he was very critical of writers at that time in Russia who were writing ideological novels, novels with a, a very clear or sometimes called polemical novels, novels that had a very clear polemical message, a clear social message of which there were many in the 1860s in Russia. It was a very divisive time. It was a very ideologically divided time. Everyone thought that they had the answer to where society should go, all these things. And so people wrote novels to illustrate their messages. And Tolstoy wrote to one of those novelists in a really kind of annoyed letter. He said, that's not the purpose of writing fiction. It's not to solve social questions. And in that same letter, he said something very profound. He said, the goal of an artist is not to solve a question irrefutably. 
but to force people to love life in all of its countless inexhaustible manifestations. If I were told that I could create a work of art in which I would resolve all of the social questions of today, I wouldn't spend two hours in that kind of work. But if I knew that what I wrote today would be read by the children of today in 20 years, and that they would laugh and weep and fall in love with life because of it, then I would dedicate all of my energy to such a work. Well, that's a, a great case to be made right there. That is a great case that you just made or Tolstoy made to read War and Peace to go on that journey. I strongly recommend those in the audience, if you've tried it and didn't get through it, give it another chance. If you have never read it, I'm here to say that if you can push through it and get into it, there's so many wonderful lessons and the reward is definitely worth it. Andrew, where can people get started? You mentioned at the beginning that you recommend people read this in a group setting. What advice do you have for people that might want to take the plunge? Reach out to your friends, reach out to your family, people you're living with, people. And now that in our Zoom world, at least for the next several months, you know, there's lots of people you could potentially reach. Reach out to people and say, you know, you're hearing lots of interesting things about this book called War and Peace. And in fact, I will tell you that this is true, that during the pandemic, there's been a lot written about the fact that there's been a resurgence of interest in this particular novel in reading in general, but in Tolstoy in particular, in War and Peace. And so it's also very fashionable right now. Reach out to your friends, your family, and say, you know, I heard this guy, Andy Kaufman, this UVA professor, talk about War and Peace. And you know what? I think I'm ready to give it a chance. And here are the reasons that I, I think now is a good time to read it. Let's read this thing together. And let's set up a reading plan, a schedule, and we'll meet once a month, you know, and, or once a week, or however we want to do it. Build a community around it. Now, also, you can go online, and I, I, I know there are places, there are already existing communities. You can just search for Tolstoy War and Peace Reading Group. And so I think that's the way you do it. You don't want to climb Mount Everest alone. You need to have support, and you'll just learn so much from one another. And also, people sometimes ask me, well, how can they use my book, Give War and Peace a Chance? By the way, the subtitle, I think we can guess it by now, but the full book title is Give War and Peace a Chance. Tolstoyan wisdom for troubled times. People ask me, should I read your book before I read War and Peace, while reading it, or after? And my answer is yes, yes, and yes. People, groups have done all of the above. Some people have found the book helpful as a primer, even though there will be some plot spoilers, unfortunately, but not all of them, not every plot spoiler, but you can read it as a primer. People have read Give War and Peace a Chance while reading War and Peace. And the thing about Give War and Peace a Chance is that it follows the trajectory of the novel. So as you're reading about Tolstoy's wisdom on each of these different topics about love and family and death and perseverance, you're also going through the novel, you're making your way through the novel. And so my book actually follows the narrative of the novel. So I sometimes describe it also as kind of a, a cliff notes on steroids. Everything that you need to know about War and Peace for the cocktail party, you'll find in that book. So some people use the book that way. And then the other way to use the book is, I think as you did, Sean, is to read the novel and then my book will stimulate further thinking about it. And you might choose to go back and reread the novel again. I've already contemplated that, definitely. And I strongly recommend the book. It helped me reflect on what I just experienced as a reader. It helped me understand. You brought certain passages to the forefront and explained some parts of the plot that went over my head and connected the dots. And I think War and Peace can be a novel that I could go back to more than once, more than twice, maybe in my life. Do you find that 
people do go back to it again and again? Yeah, and it's one of those books that at every age there's wisdom and insight. You know, Russians are required to read War and Peace when they're in tenth grade, and so tenth graders read it. And there's a a poorly hidden secret that the girls tend to read the peace sections and the boys read the war sections at that age. They're completely missing the point. And then um, students read it in college. You know, my college students read it. People read it in their 20s when they're going through that same period, that same search that many of the characters who are in their 20s are going through. People read it when they're going through their midlife crisis. We have some of those in War and Peace. And people read it in old age. So it's an incredibly universal book. And what you will find, I've read War and Peace like 16 times now. And what you'll find is a different novel every time. I've returned to War and Peace every couple of years over a long period of time. And it's a new book takes on new life. I discover new meanings in it. And that's what a great work of literature does. If it's the same book that you remember when you were you know, 20 years younger, then either you haven't changed or the book isn't rich enough to sustain multiple readings. Well, this has just been a wonderful conversation, Andrew. Where can people find out more about you and the projects you're working on now? I have a website, andrewdkaufman.com. And you know they can learn about one of the things that I'm working on. We didn't have time to talk about this, but I created a program at the University of Virginia in 2010, where I take my undergraduate students to a juvenile correctional center, and the undergraduate students and the correctional center students explore these big questions together through the lens of Russian literature. And there's been a documentary film made about that called Seats at the Table, which is airing currently nationally on PBS, and so. That's just another example of how incredibly relevant and universal Russian literature is, that here we're reading it in a prison, in a youth prison, a juvenile correctional center. And the insights and the transformation that I watch happening are profound. Andrew, this has been wonderful. Thank you for being on The Good Life. Thank you, Sean. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.